Good morning. This is Laura Huey, and uh, you have joined us on Sociology 4451, which uh, here at Western, which is an advanced seminar on policing. I am joined by my erstwhile co-hosts, uh, Chewbacca and Lucy, who are currently, one is snoozing and one is staring at me like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm going to get a T-R-E-A-T out of this. Oh, she's gone back to sleep. So hopefully we'll be able to get through the next little bit without too many barks and other disturbances. By the way, for those of you that have been following along with this series, uh, I am now on what feels like day 87 of my captivity. Uh, as you may know, I'm self-quarantining, not just uh, the COVID, but also the regular flu, which quite frankly is bad enough. So Throat's holding out pretty well today, but I do have my uh, big barrel of coffee here to slurp my way through so we can hopefully get through today's topic. I'm starting a new module, which is uh, new policing strategies. For those of you in my regular class, you might have already sat through this. You can now go back to sleep. Uh, if you missed class because you were one of the ones that was uh, sick or away, good news, I've, re I've taped it for you. So for new policing strategies, one of the topics that I intend to cover, and it's the focus for today, is hotspots. Uh, hotspots is a uh, policing strategy that focuses on small geographical areas where crime is concentrated. This is in contrast to random patrol, the old school method of policing where police officers would just uh, randomly drive around designated areas, it might be beats or patrols or districts or, or, or precincts and so on. Um, they would randomly drive around just waiting for a call to come in and, and respond. Hotspotting uses crime mapping uh, to identify where high crime, high density crime locations occur. And the reality is, and I've talked about this in, in, in my class quite frequently, ad nauseum some might say, um, it is a fact that certain types of locations are crime generators and crime attractors. There's a whole area known as risk terrain modeling, which focuses on the on aspects of the built environment, meaning types of buildings, types of um, facilities, and so on that happen to generate more crime or attract more criminal elements than others. Certain types of uh, bars, for example, bars, um, certain types, bars, generally speaking, uh, attract lots of uh, different types of criminal activity. Uh, McDonald's, I'm always harping on about McDonald's, but we've, we've seen research that's been conducted here in Canada where you take down a, a, a McDonald's that's associated with a significant amount of, by the way, I can feel McDonald's Canada getting ready to file their lawsuit right now, sorry, but the research suggests that um, if you have uh, McDonald's in, in, in certain core areas of a city, and especially, uh, and I'm thinking of one city in particular, right next to a bar, you're going to see high rates of, higher rates of crime relative to other places in the city. And we can test this because when, a, when this particular McDonald's I'm thinking of was demolished, crime rates went down, despite the fact that the bar that was still, uh, the bar was still there. So that, that's a pretty strong indication that, um, that, that, that McDonald's served as a crime uh, generator and attractor. And I've got all sorts of theories for why that occurs. We'll save that for another day. 
So essentially what happens is when we do hotspot policing, crime data is fed into geographical mapping systems, ArcGIS is an example, and they show how the volume of crime is distributed within and across neighborhoods. I can tell you from an evidence-based policing perspective that this is one of the best tested theories in policing and community safety and it is frequently cited by people such as myself and many, many others as an example of a theory with a very strong evidence base. By that, I'm not just talking about the volume of research, I'm also talking about the diversity of research. We have tested hotspot policing in a whole bunch of different areas uh, in the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, the UK, and it consistently has uh, been demonstrated that when you match policing resources to where high crime density areas occur, you can reduce crime. And we'll talk about some of the issues, uh, both real and perceived around hotspotting, but we'll come back to that later. So let's talk about burglaries. Burglaries is a great example of an area where we've done tons and tons of research. What we know is that burglars, and we know this, by the way, from research with burglars, where researchers have gone in and uh, interviewed convicted burglars about their choice of targets. What makes a space attractive or not, or less attractive to them? And I always say this, uh, dogs. I have two of the barkiest little mutts known to mankind and um, there's a reason for that. Aside from the fact that it drives me bat bleep crazy, uh, they're great, they're great, great burglar deterrents. These things start howling if you are within like, I don't know, 200 yards of my house. Okay, so what makes a space attractive? Well, one of the things that makes a space attractive is if it's already been successfully targeted. Burglars tend to re-victimize particular places and areas creating hot spots or hot zones. Um, police, can, police agencies can effectively identify these risk areas and then target them through increased presence as well as uh, doing, uh, engaging in initiatives where they notify neighbors that you are now at an increased risk of being burglarized because your neighbor was burglarized. The term we use for that is near repeats. So if you have been burglarized once, your chances of being re-burglarized within a certain period of time, you, there goes Lucy, she's already warning us, um, your chances of being uh, re-burglarized are higher because of a variety of different factors. First of all, the, the burglar has already successfully targeted you. Second of all, chances are you have started to replenish some of your lost and stolen, your stolen items. Um, and so, yay, I'm gonna go get a new TV. That, again, the term for that is a repeat. If you are a neighbor, then you are at an increased risk and you are known as a near repeat. This is because the burglar sees that neighborhood as being, uh, as being sort of a safe space within which to commit further offenses. And if you want to check out some research, look at Morgan 2000. If you, in terms of crime prevention tactics, as I said, because we understand how burglars work and how they generate repeats and near repeats, police can work to increase awareness of uh, residents and local businesses awareness that they are at increased risk and then they can engage in activities that we call things like target hardening. Target hardening is 
all that wonderful crime prevention stuff such as bars, um, gates, uh, cameras, better locks, dogs, and so on. Uh, as well, you can start to identify areas of natural surveillance. So, and as well, use natural surveillance to keep an eye on the local neighborhood to make sure your neighbors aren't being broken into. If you see some uh, some people, you know, suddenly pulling up a moving van in front of your neighbor's house, and you you know your neighbor hasn't moved, He's, he or she has just gone to work. Hello, use your natural surveillance to see what's going on and to report to the police. Now, there are lots of uh, drawbacks that have been identified in relation to hotspot policing or real and perceived. One of the big issues that has, has arisen with hotspotting, people have, have said, well, you know, if your data is disproportionately in low socioeconomic status neighborhoods, because that's where police typically tend to over-police anyway, or so the theory goes, um, well then you are going to be having an increased police presence in marginalized neighborhoods that are already impacted by negative policing. And I, while there uh, is some merit to that, I would also make a counter argument, which is those are also the same types of neighborhoods in which there is over victimization and typically under reporting. Uh, low socioeconomic status uh, neighborhoods have high rates of crime, particularly high rates of violent victimization. There's a ton of research on this, including a lot of my own stuff. I will not plug my work here. Um, buy my book at 19, no, I'm kidding. Um, that is a fact. And so when we talk about over-policing, we also have to think about under-policing as well and coming up with constructive solutions to make sure that crime is properly being responded to in neighborhoods with high victimization rates but that people feel safe and the police are part of the community not just there to crack down on crime stop people and so on and so forth and we can do a whole thing about community policing and uh, really good strong community policing measures which i'll save for another discussion uh, maybe another module we could talk about that as being a viable solution. So when we talk about responding and using hotspots, it does not have to be using arrests, using uh, stop, uh, stop and search in the UK, stop question and frisk in the, in, uh, the States, and carding or um, street checks here in Canada. There's other ways. We actually also happen to know through the literature on hotspotting that a visible deterrence, just police officers being visibly present in a neighborhood can have a significant impact on reducing crime. That is, they're just, their, their cars are present, they are present, they're walking around in the neighborhood, talk, maybe talking to people, going in, see how local businesses are doing and so on. In fact, there's some research that's been done by my colleague Chris Coper at George Mason University. It's called, the, the term is the Coper Curve. It's not just that police have to be present all the time. We've done a ton of experiments with uh, how to maximize the deterrent effect of police presence without having them be there like for a 8, 10, 12 hour shift. And Coper studied this and suggests that 
police presence anywhere between approximately 10 to 15 minutes, and I believe the optimal is about 10, uh, 12 minutes. 12 minutes of visible presence can have a deterrent effect for several hours afterwards. So police can go, they can stand on local street corner for about 12 minutes just watching. Uh, uh, would-be uh, uh, would predators that might be wanting to jump out and uh, rob people and so on will be aware of that police presence and uh, might uh, reduce, uh, might change their, their, hang on, I need coffee. My brain is shot this morning. The flu is literally eating my brain. Mm. Much better. Coffee, the elixir of life. Okay. So anyway, we're going to talk about some of the ways in which we uh, offender offending can be displaced. Let's talk about displacement and diffusion. So one of the big arguments that's been made about using uh, hotspotting is, well, all you're doing is displacing crime. You're not really fixing it. You're not really preventing it. You're not really curing it. Quite frankly, it's not clear to me that the police are the ones that ought to be curing crime, given curing in the sense that a lot of, uh, in fact, the bulk of criminality has to do with causes, well, in fact, I would argue all criminality has to do with causes that are beyond the scope of what police can actually uh, uh, accomplish in terms of prevention. That is, these are issues to do with family breakdown, addiction, mental health, um, and so on that quite frankly, unless we want to live in the matrix, uh, we can do some targeting interventions, but as a global sort of issue socially, we can't do much with. What we can hope to do is displace and diffuse some of the benefits and some of the drawbacks of crime. And people argue, oh, well, displacement, that's terrible. You're just shifting the burden of crime onto other neighborhoods. Well, I want to talk about that because displacement is actually a lot more complex of a phenomenon than that. When we talk about displacement of crime and disorder, we can be talking about a displacement as a relocation of crime as a result of a crime prevention initiative. And that's commonly when people use the term displacement, that's what they're thinking of. Sometimes this occurs intentionally. One of the examples I give in my class is my famous uh, drug dealer park experiment. I have proposed to multiple police services that um, if you want to, we actually have a pretty decent body of research on also what affects, uh, what leads to the generation of open air drug markets. And um, the answer to that, according to some research that's been done in Chicago, uh, Robert Sampson, by the way, does a ton of really interesting work on this. One of his students, whose name completely escapes me, but will come to me shortly, did his PhD by asking a novel idea, asking drug dealers what makes a, a site particularly attractive to you. And it turns out it's not broken windows. It's things like buses. So one of the arguments that I've made is if we understand, uh, for example, like we do with burglary, what causes uh, certain places to become targeted, we could intentionally move those markets and through the course of intentionally moving them, control the, the environment a little bit better to reduce crime, uh, not just, you know, I know I'm a Canadian, so I happen to believe that you're not gonna get rid of drug dealing. I think what you need to do is you need to manage it better. And one of the issues around drug dealing has to do with predatory violence associated with markets, not just turf warfare, 
but a lot of uh, violence associated with unpaid drug debts. And as somebody who has worked with victims of crime in a number of communities, including the downtown east side, uh, where historically women uh, would be the victims of violence for unpaid drug debts, it's pretty horrific. And so trying to reduce some of that, I'm a big fan of. My idea was that if we, as I say, if we understand how a market operates and what is optimal in terms of the environment for that market, if we can recreate it in a space that is safer, use proactive policing to move the market, and then with lots of natural surveillance around that space, which is why I like the idea of a park, then you can keep it contained and you can also uh, have have the local neighborhood complain less, the businesses complain less, um, people are still getting access to their drugs. I'd like to move drug dealer park near a safe uh, consumption or supervised injection site so that we know that a lot of times when people um, buy drugs, they consume them fairly within a fairly short distance of where they bought them. So we want them to use in safe injection sites, which will reduce the, their risk of overdose, um, uh, say, uh, unsafe injection practices, as well as a whole bunch of crime and disorder issues around um, this, including discarded needles, which is a significant, uh, significant disorder issue in a lot of communities. That said, nobody has yet to take me up on Drug Dealer Park. Call me if you are interested in running this experiment. Uh, sometimes, of course, displacement occurs as an unintended effect. You create a crackdown in one community and uh, it, just moves, it just moves it a couple blocks over. Now, here's an, uh, I've got, oh, there's Lucy. Um, you know, displacement typically occurs not that far from where the, where the act, activity, the police activity is occurring. That, that is what we call spatial displacement. So offenders change their locations, but that's not the only type of displacement. We can also create temporal displacement where we get offenders to change the time at which they offend. So we happen to know a lot of burglary, for example, occurs during the daytime and a lot of those burglars are inexperienced. They won't take the risk of, of engaging in uh, breaking and enter into a house at night because chances are the homeowner might be there, so the risk is too high. So we can, by um, understanding when, at what times of the day, during the week and so on, that certain types of crimes occur, we might be able to uh, displace some of that be potential behavior and in fact reduce it. Uh, targets, offenders change their target from one type of target to another. So for example, if you can't break into my house, you might try to, at night, you might try to break into my shed. If you go into my particular shed, you're gonna get low volume items. I don't got a lawnmower. I don't got, a, I got a weed whacker though. I don't think that thing works. Um, I, in fact, somebody did uh, break into my shed and they got nothing. Cause I don't, we don't keep valuable stuff in our shed. That's a little crime prevention tip for you guys. Tactical, there's also tactical displacement. Offenders alter the methods that they use to carry out crime. In fact, we know this anyway for career criminals, that they will uh, alter their uh, MO, their modus, modus operandi for you, like CSI lovers, their, or their method of operating, which is the term I prefer, um, 
they will over time. They'll experiment with new techniques uh, and improve their craft. For a lot of career criminals, their work is a craft and they will learn new methods. We can actually try to consciously um, do that. More often than not, that's an unintentional displacement. And of course, there's displacement with respect to the offense. Offenders switch from one form of crime to another. That's not that easy. Go back to what I said about craft. Uh, often there's actually, let me just pull it up. Oh, well, I'll come back to that. I've just realized that I'm in my enthusiasm for this topic, I'm skipping ahead like 14 different slides. Let me go to where I want to go. So again, just typically displacement is viewed as a negative consequence of crime prevention. However, there's what we call benign displacement, where we can actually um, use proactive strategies to get offenders to shift to less serious crimes. As I say, my example of instead of breaking into my house, you break into my shed or you go out in the backyard and take my... Um, I actually don't have a barbecue. Well, good luck stealing the hibachi, but okay. So you steal my hibachi instead of my uh, my TV, I'm happy. Uh, benign displacement also includes uh, concentration of crime, which is redistributed across a larger pool of victims. That might not sound like a great benefit, but let's face it. As I say, certain communities are overwhelmingly negatively impacted by crime, especially serious violent crime. If we can break some of that up. Part of the thing with breaking up crime and, but through displacement is that oftentimes the markets or the criminal activities start to break up into smaller pieces that police can even more proactively target and break it up further and further. Um, sometimes crime can be relocated to places where community impact is less harmful. Drug Dealer Park is a great example of that. And sometimes displacement can also include a lower volume of offenses for all the reasons I've already suggested. This is the opposite of this view that displacement is always a malign or terrible thing. In fact, another way of thinking about this, it could be diffusion, diffusion of benefits. When you reduce crime in areas or ways that are not related, um, Hang on, I need a cup of coffee here. A cup. That was a Freudian slip. I need a sip. Hmm. You can also diffuse crime through prevention actions or activities that, as I say, uh, produce greater benefits. And those benefits can also, as I said earlier, be spatial, temporal, target, tactical, and offense related. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because nobody that I'm aware of in terms of arguing about hotspot policing ever says, oh, it's terrible. We diffuse the benefits. One of the notes about displacement, and this is one of the counter arguments for those that are like, oh, it's terrible. You're just displacing crime. Displacement does not typically occur on a one-to-one -one rate. And there's some really good uh, criminology research that goes way back that, that explains why. Cornish and Clark in 1986 observed that offenders will only displace their crime behavior when the risks and the effort of committing new crimes are worth the reward. When you move into a new, when you are comfortable in an area, there's a variety of reasons, and we'll talk about rational choice and rat in a second. 
But there's a variety of reasons why offenders work in the spaces that they do because they're, um, they're, they are comfortable and those spaces work in terms of whatever it is that they're, as I say, crime is business, whatever their business model is. Or a lot of crime is business, a lot of predatory crime is business. So when you move people, they have to reestablish their business. And in order to do that, the risks and the effort have to be worth the reward. Now I come to rational choice models of crime and displacement, which I think we should pay a lot of attention to. The RAT model, and CANSEB has um, an, a video coming out shortly, a five-minute video on RAT, which stands for Routine Activities Theory, which is Felsen and uh, Cohen, suggests that crime occurs when you've got a motivated offender, a suitable target, and there's no capable guardian or there's no uh, deterrent, visible deterrent there to stop that person from acting on, on their on their desire to offend or their motivation to offend. So rational choice models, uh, as they relate to displacements, suggest we should pay attention to offender motivation. This goes back to what I said about understanding why burglars pick the targets that they do. Some offenders are highly motivated to offend and career criminals have an increased risk um, when they displace their offending behavior for the reasons I've suggested. So let's actually think consciously about displacement and think about how we can better target certain, as I say, here's a great example. A friend of mine, uh, I'll, I'll rat her out. Um, a friend of mine with the London Police Service, Maria Wright, is doing work on, um, on impaired driving and, and understanding why, wh how, why, when an impaired driving occurs in certain types of places. It's not like any other type of crime. It's not, uh, it is, it can be concentrated. Obviously bars and pubs and things like that all have an impact. So understanding um, the choices that people make in terms of where, they, where they're gonna commit certain types of crime, whether it's intentional or unintentional, Understanding that we w gives us a better insight into how to prevent it and and how to how to make more effective arrests for people that prevention is not going to work. Mm. Just had to have a little slurp there. Uh, absence of a visible deterrent. Understanding what uh, things could be done in the environment to increase the chances of getting caught. And here's the thing, once you use displacement, these types of uh, displacement techniques in one space, then what you can do is if you're consciously trying to displace it to other communities or break up markets, you can then target those communities for uh, providing them information on how they can reduce their risk. So again, using displacement as a conscious strategy that is managed at every step, because you have a pretty good idea if you're gonna displace, for example, I live in London, I'm a terrible Ontario geography person, but I think St. Thomas is next door. If we do a big blitz in St. Thomas, or sorry, that we do a big blitz in London, we're gonna tell people in St. Thomas, you know, here's the things that you're at increased risk, here's the things that you can do, and then, you know, eventually we'll push it out to Chatham. Sorry, Chatham. I'm not actually sure where Chatham is. I just know it's out, way outside of London. But 
Chatham's a very pretty city, so we'll just keep we'll just keep it going. Okay, we'll just pass Windsor. Crime opportunity availability of targets that meet their skill sets to commit crime and in spaces in which they feel comfortable. Again, I've talked ad nauseum about this. Understanding how to reduce opportunities. Oh, I hear Lucy getting ready to bark. Apparently, there's uh, somebody is within uh, 300 yards of my house. If you want to understand a little bit more about the theories behind thinking through displacement, I want to recommend Cloward and Olin, 1960, an illegitimate opportunity theory. There's a ton of research that comes out of this body of theory that suggests that offenders' knowledge is limited in terms of knowing how to commit various crime types. You, ha it, you, you have to learn how to commit crime to be successful at it. And that in, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, typically that entails knowing people who will show you the ropes. <coughs> oh no. <coughs> Don't worry kids, it's not COVID. I've just got a dry throat. It's more, I need more coffee. Mm. Um, it's also nature's way of saying I need to shut up soon. So again, understanding that a lot of crime, B&Es, drug dealing and so on is a craft for the for the for the offender and that they have to learn how to commit these crimes so when we use displacement we ha they have to learn they have to learn not just new environments but perhaps new techniques and new targets or new crime types we also know offenders are less likely as i said to commit crime in places that are unfamiliar especially when oftentimes there are formal and informal boundaries that may limit their opportunity to offend. I'm sorry, but you cannot just, I cannot go out into London, and I'm not super skilled on this, but um, I can't go into downtown London and just set myself up as a drug dealer. Chances are I'm going to be threatened, beaten, potentially stabbed, and maybe shot, um, if I decide I'm going to go into, you know, I'm, uh, you know, downtown Toronto or New York and just say, Hey, Hey everybody, I'm setting up here. Um, I'm Lord, the drug dealer coming by for me because I might potentially, well, aside from the fact that I would be really inept and unskilled and the other drug dealers should probably laugh at me. Um, I would, I, if I became successful, I would potentially be threatening their market. And um, that's oftentimes where you start to see inter-gang warfare. Also, sometimes uh, there's curfew times, for example, uh, there's curfews if you, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to commit crimes if you, you know, for example, you're on day parole and you've gotta be back at the, um, at uh, your facility at night. So if we stop you from being uh, active with your criminal activities during the day, we might actually reduce your ability to, well, we will hopefully reduce your ability to offend at night. Okay, Lucy is growling up a storm upstairs. You can't hear her, but she's about to go off on some poor hapless neighbor. So I think this is a good time to take a break and uh, we'll come back for another module when I am recaffeinated and uh, Lucy is sound, sound asleep. Thanks for